Hello and welcome once again to episode 70 of Code Completion. We are a group of iOS developers and educators hoping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code. My name is Dimitri and I'll be your host once again for this episode and I'm joined today by my fellow completionist, Spencer. Hey there. So Spencer, I hear you've been using a certain framework a lot recently. Care to elaborate? Yes. I have been uh, deep back into SwiftUI after a very long hiatus. Um, I finally got, uh, you know, uh, assigned a a feature in... um, in my just my day job and it was UI related and I I honestly I prob- probably haven't touched UI in 6 months or so and so it was a nice change but also I was like oh no I don't remember <laughs> anything and so I looked at you know our storyboards and everything and I was like hmm do I want to touch storyboards again and so I decided to uh, implement this new thing in Swift UI, which uh, the last time I did something UI related kind of as a larger feature rather than just kind of fixing things up was also in Swift UI. So uh, it was interesting that I kind of gravitated to that first, I suppose, uh, as opposed to being like, okay, now I need to remember uh, how to, t- you know, do things on a storyboard and constraints. And, you know, to be clear, I I think I could do it. It's just, it's been a long time, both in my day job and my personal work where I haven't done it. So uh, I was like, you know what, I'll give it a shot again in Swift UI. I, th- I feel like I've learned a fair amount uh, since the last time I touched it. And I think, um, I can't remember if, if Swift UI has changed since then. Um, I think it's been a little over six months. But anyway, I went with Swift UI. And so, you know, inevitably, I went to our rubber ducky Slack channel and um, started pestering Dimitri and uh, <laughs> about Swift UI because there was a lot that I had forgotten. And so, uh, you know, I, I thought it would be maybe nice to just kind of go over Swift UI in general, but also maybe talk about some more of like the esoteric things that uh, I don't understand. And I think probably um, some other people don't understand as well. <laughs> And that's actually quite ironic because I have not been using SwiftUI all that much recently and I'm back like 100% in uh, UI kit land with constraints and stuff. No storyboards, mm. mind you. I'm not a, I'm not that crazy of a person. Um, just kidding. Uh, but uh, yeah, so SwiftUI is, is really great for like doing simple layouts and even doing complex layouts as long as you're not like architecting an entire app in swift ui that's like the one use case i would shy away from having used it a lot um there are a lot of good benefits uh to using swift ui over ui kit so as spencer said what better time to kind of go over the whole thing as a whole so then you can if you haven't started using it yet uh you can get a better understanding of like when you might want to start using it and how to get started right mm-hmm yeah, for sure. I mean, it was it was really interesting. Um, we you know we have designers, uh, which is great because I kind of gave or this feature that I'm working on was like they told me to sort of prototype it out, prototype a UI and stuff, and I it took me so long to even try to imagine in my mind what the UI would look like, and then when they and I submitted and they're like, okay, we're going to tweak it, obviously, uh, but when they came back with the designs. Uh, it was uh, pretty surprising how uh, straightforward it was to um, make it look like the designs, I suppose, if that makes sense. Like, uh, it's got, you know, Lima Fusion's UI is pretty not, like, really non-standard, I suppose. So, um, you know, having borders on, on our views and stuff in a very specific way and setting font sizes, it was really easy. So... Um, I was quite pleased with the speed at which I could get the basic design done, uh, and then, you know, tweaking things like animations and, uh, really getting into the nitty gritty, but overall making it look pretty dang close was quite quick. And I was quite pleased with that. Mm -hmm. And that's typically a nightmare when it comes to actually doing that in UIKit. 
yeah. um, any oh, sort yeah. of like custom UI work where every little bit is slightly different. Like if you have all the same buttons, and yes, you make like one button subclass and everything's fine. But anytime you need to like tweak this layout a little bit or tweak that layout a little bit, it's like very quickly a nightmare uh, to deal with. Um, so to get started, let's actually discuss like what SwiftUI is um, because it is not really what UIKit is. Um, mm-hmm. They are like serving two very different purposes. Um, namely, SwiftUI is very much a layout engine, um, and it's not actually doing much of the heavy work when it comes to putting stuff on screen. Um, it still actually punts that to UIKit uh, for the most part, um, but SwiftUI is making decisions about um, like what should be a view, what should not be a view. Um, in terms of an actual thing uh, that's composited by the GPU. Um, so to get into that a little, let's compare UIKit and SwiftUI. So UIKit um, is what I would call a compositing engine. So it uses core, uh, core animation under the hood um, to set up a layer per view, basically. And a layer, um, if it has contents, then that layer is going to be a texture on the GPU. Um, and those textures, they, you kind of just like arrange them and then flatten them and you have an image that you can show on screen. Um, so, uh, that's the conceptual like mental model that you need, but that's also like what is happening under the hood. Your app isn't necessarily doing the compositing on iOS. Like that's taken care of by the Windows server or springboard, uh, in this case. And that has changed recently in macOS as well. Um, where you no longer are like rendering your own views. You're just telling the system, hey, these are my views, and then the system will render them um, as it needs to. Uh, so UIKit kind of forces you to make decisions about what should be a view, what should not be a view, what should get a texture, what should not get a texture, basically, um, which uh, is fine at a low level, um, but from a high level, it can get in the way. Like Spencer said, like if you need to put borders on uh, different shapes that kind of surround different elements, that is a nightmare because now you have to have a view that's dedicated to doing that. Um, and uh, that is a lot of work and a lot of boilerplate to set up uh, properly, even if it's possible. Like mm-hmm. anything is possible with uh, UIKit. It's just how much work do you want to like spend doing simple things? This is especially like made noticeable when you have other uh, layout engines on the web, for instance, that just take care of all these details for you and you just don't think about them. Um, things like CSS properties and stuff like that just magically just change the layout. Um, mm-hmm. And you don't really have to think too much about that. And I think that's where SwiftUI kind of aims to go. So a view in SwiftUI is very much not a view um, as you are kind of used to thinking about it, it's just a model of what uh, that container represents. And then mm-hmm. it's up to SwiftUI to decide, hey, does this get a texture? If it does, then great, we're going to make an actual UI view to back it. And there's going to be uh, a layer involved. If it doesn't need a texture, if it's just layout information that you're propagating back and forth, or... Um, uh, display information like what the font should be and stuff like that, then that information does not need a view. So uh, SwiftUI can go ahead and optimize it away. Um, this is actually kind of interesting because on macOS, AppKit actually does a little bit of this. A view doesn't necessarily always get a layer. Um, and it's up to uh, the view to say, hey, I don't need... Like, I can be composited into my parents' layer just fine. Uh, so you don't need to give me a layer. Um, and AppKit can actually optimize a lot of that away. But on iOS, that's never really made it. So I think SwiftUI kind of brings a lot of the modern affordances that we we're kind of used to from the web over to um, native development land. And that's why I really call it a layout engine, because that's all it's really doing. It's determining... Uh, layout so that way um, UIKit, which is still being used under the hood, can go ahead and display all the views that you've kind of described, right? Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty powerful to be able to just kind of tell it, like, 
kind of give it a recipe and say like this is what I want go make it type of thing rather than mm-hmm. you being so granular and saying like I will you know basically to the pixel tell you what it needs to be but um like um one of the things that I was trying to do was make um this kind of overall uh, I guess you could call it a view controller. It's being kind of presented as like this little pop-up window. So it's not taking up the whole screen, but make those views um, size correctly. And so I try not to have very specific like quote unquote constraints to, uh, you know, the size, like a fixed size for any of the views, but rather say like, hey, you know, if the width is like 300 pixels on an iPad, great. If it's, uh, you know, bigger or smaller or whatever, just make it work. And it was really quite good at doing that where, you know, you could do that with constraints um, in, in UI kit. But um, again, I feel like it may have been a little bit more cumbersome, if that makes sense. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- there's definitely a lot of boilerplate with constraints yeah. in UI kit, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and understanding like that whole layout engine, right? Um, you need to be comfortable with it before you can be practical with it. And if you're not comfortable with it, then it's like very hard to get doing what you want it to do. Like I remember um, anytime anyone starting with uh, app development uh, would eventually hit a brick wall and say like, hey, my view controller or my storyboard, um, I don't know what's going on anymore. Nothing works uh, anymore. Like I added one view and everything's broken. And you take a look at their constraints and none of them are described in a thoughtful way. Like they were just Mm -hmm. added for every view, not really understanding like how they actually interact with each other. Um, And when you use them that way, sure, you're going to get what you get when you like drag it onto the, into the storyboard, but you're going to have no idea of what's going to happen when the view size changes or when the content changes, like it's all up in the air because you didn't design the constraints just like you designed the views. You just kind of slap them in. Um, and uh, Swift UI has a very different set of like uh, constraints there uh, and uh, a very different way of thinking about the layout. So it's it's definitely a different thing that you need to get used to, especially if you are coming from the world of constraints. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, circling back, uh, you mentioned basically how you wanted to use Swift UI like for a very particular use case. Um, thankfully, Swift UI comes with a UI kit controller, right? Uh, UI hosting controller. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, that's the good part. <laughs> Just like uh, our topic last week, you don't have to like go all in on Swift UI and, you know, it, refactor your entire uh apps UI to use Swift UI, but uh, it's just natively kind of intercompatible with um, with UI kit. So uh, all of our, most of our UI, except for that keypad I was working on last year and a couple other things that, um, that um, Andrew Madsen was working on uh, are Swift UI and that's it. The rest is UI kit. So um, our, our app is very, very much UI kit, but the good, good part about that is there's kind of this bridge, which is UI hosting controller, uh, that essentially, I guess the easiest way that I could describe it that as, as well as I understand it is you initialize like a Swift UI view, and then you add it as a sub view of this hosting controller, and you can sort of just treat it as like a normal UI, UI view. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, from there, you're able to present that uh, view controller however you, however you want and everything. Uh, and it's just, you know, uh, to the user, there's no uh, discernible difference between what is a Swift UI view and a UI kit view. Mm-hmm. And all, all you really need to do to do that properly is sell proper follow like UI view controller containment, like, hey, we'll move to controller and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. that's just so that way event propagation happens. Um, but even if you're lazy about that, uh, I do recommend keeping your overall like infrastructure of the app as UI kit. Like it's very tempting to just go with the Swift UI. Oh, hey, let's make an app, and then there's a window group, and we're yeah. done, right? Um, <laughs> because you actually limit yourself severely whenever you do that, because Swift UI can't do all the things that UI kit can. Um, but if you use Swift UI for um, 
like independent screens or uh, like underlying views, then all of its strengths really come out because you can get very creative with your UI at that point without like being held back by UIKit. And then you're not held back by Swift UI because you can get creative with um, how things are being displayed, transitions between things um, with UIKit um, right. that's not available in Swift UI yet, right? Yeah, that totally makes sense. It's been, I mean, the integration of, of the Swift UI views uh, into the rest of the UIKit app is super easy. Like you said, it's, you know, um, just as easy as, as really putting it in that UI hosting controller, calling a couple methods to... Uh, for the life cycle and then you're you're done so that's the, i mean that has been the the nice thing especially with our app is like i i've kind of already mentioned this but just getting that that custom ui done really quickly the functionality of what i'm trying to do is not hard and it's mostly already implemented like from before i even tried this it's just we're making a nice ui for the user to do uh the thing that we're that it's going to do uh, so it was really just like a design thing. So being able to, you know, design that in Swift UI and then drop it into the rest of the UI kit app is pretty dang nice. So. And one thing I didn't really realize when I first started using Swift UI, because I was mostly all in the Swift UI part, um, is you can actually uh, modify the view that you give to the UI hosting controller and you can just swap it out as long as it's the same view type you can just give it a new instance, not even an instance, a new copy of that view. Because views in SwiftUI, if you remember, they're structs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so any any changes to them is just data at that point. Um, so you can give it a new copy of data with new values for its properties and stuff like that. And then UI hosting control will just do a regular SwiftUI layout update from that point forward. And it won't even necessarily update everything. It's not going to throw away anything that didn't change in that process. So um, if you are using UI hosting controller, do know that you can bring in information from the outside just by resetting the content view um, anytime the information changes. Like you don't need to hook up anything complicated with an object that is seen by both and stuff like that. Like you can keep everything stateful um, and just swap it out whenever an external um, uh, signal changes, right? That's interesting. I've not thought about that. Um, I'm just trying to think of like a, a time when I would do that. Um, like like you're saying, when some external uh, state changes. But So I needed to do that very recently because um, the scroll view that SwiftUI provides uh, <clears throat> is very convenient, but it is lacking a lot of the features that a UI scroll view would have. So I needed mm-hmm. to wrap a UI scroll view and have the contents be SwiftUI. So the contents needed to be a UI hosting controller, mm-hmm. but those contents need to, to be dynamic. So I needed to change them like as you're scrolling, for instance, just to get the scroll position or to pass in a binding for the uh, scroll area or the current, like where you want the user to be scrolled, all of that. Um, so like I was struggling a little bit. I was like, okay, how am I going to like data this out? And then the stupid mm. easy solution was just, oh, just make a new contents with like whatever signal you want, be it an environment or just a, like a property that you're passing in. Anytime the scroll position changes, tell the UI hosting controller, hey, here's your new content view uh, and then move on from there. And that worked super seamlessly. And it seems like it's designed to do that. It's just not super well documented, which is unfortunate. Well, yeah, that seems like more or less the, um, well, I don't know about now. I, the documentation seems okay, but I remember like when WWDC of whatever it was, 2019, 2018, uh, when SwiftUI came out, there was zero documentation. So, um, you know, I, hopefully it gets there. Um, uh, okay. So going back to the concept that like, views are like a recipe when you gave it an entirely new instance of that view struct it's still probably like you said kept a lot of the things around it just recognized the changes to whatever it was and then it didn't have to you know create the entire a new set of view views quote unquote like that whole view hierarchy it just said mm-hmm. like oh here are the things that changed and let me modify what i already have type of thing exactly um that's cool and- 
And that's that's the key secret to SwiftUI that I think don't people don't realize. The views are not views. They're models. You mm-hmm. are just passing around data that describes how to lay out your system. So they are super, super cheap. Um, and as a result, if something doesn't change in a hierarchy of a view, then it's not going to bother like redoing that hierarchy. It knows, hey, it's the same. I'm not going to touch it. Um, and this can either like be a great benefit or very confusing depending on what you're trying to do. Um, but that's like the key secret here that people try to like staple on. Oh, we're going to have our own view models for our view model because it uh-huh. is already a view model. Like let it be your view model, uh, properly. It's just conforming to a protocol that lets it can like work with Swift UI. Um, so that conformance can be in a different file if you really wanted it to, right? Um, but it is your view model, and it's important to treat it as such. Um, something that, uh, as, as you were saying, like it very much is a recipe, and that recipe all happens in that body property. So every right. view or every SwiftUI view uh, describes a body, and that's what its contents are. But that body is not actually called until SwiftUI is ready for it. So your view up until that point is just its properties. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that body is where the magic happens. Uh, and you're not actually writing regular Swift code in it. Um, you're writing uh, something called a results builder. And you're composing a bunch of other Swift UI views, uh, which the view builder knows about um, and can compose into a proper... Uh, a proper type that can be returned from um, from the body. So do be careful. This is not regular Swift. You can define variables, but you cannot necessarily do anything. So you can't just have an if statement that does some basic control flow. It's just not going to work. Um, mm-hmm. Similarly, you can't have a for loop or a while loop um, in there either because it's just it's not going to know what to do with that uh, because the view builder has to implement like every specific piece of um, of UI of Swift syntax that it wants to support, um, and it doesn't have to support everything. Uh, so that's one of the limitations of like the system. It looks like Swift, but it's all of a sudden not Swift, and that makes it kind of confusing to newcomers, especially when they think it's Swift. So if it's yeah. easier to think of it as this is a separate language that's specific to Swift UI, and there are certain rules that you just need to know about and don't carry over your existing knowledge. Uh, from Swift over to it, then that kind of works well, right? Yeah, I think that was a huge thing when I got started with Swift UI. Again, like the week of WWDC, that first thing was, uh, you know, there's no commas between different objects. You're not returning anything. It's it's very much I. It's using like the DSL feature, right, where you can have like mm-hmm. a domain specific language in Swift. So. You know, like you said, the syntax is different, and again, you're not able to use for each or sorry for loops and while loops and everything. So, what kind of helped me were were a couple things with that. Where one, uh, when I first started, you, you know, that body just got immensely huge. Just you know, maybe you don't separate your views out into separate view structs or regardless, it can just get kind of long. And so one thing that helped was uh, using like view builders to essentially break that out into like, maybe I've got, you know, a top header uh, kind of section of that overall view that I'm trying to make. Well, you could use a view builder uh, and I'm sure we'll get into that in a second um, to kind of build that out and then just call that function in the body itself. And then it's kind of self-encapsulated. That was really nice um another thing was uh like dimitri said you can't have really any logic in your uh thing so if you needed to uh i don't know compute some value you'd have to either do it like in line of you know the argument to uh some view initializer or whatever and that sucked so what i do and i don't know if this is the greatest thing to do but is just pull it out into a function that does all the work and then call that function in the, um, in the argument to make it look a little more nice where you're not having to maybe use a ternary operator or something kind of in line to have whatever that, that logic is. Mm-hmm. And, and the Swift compiler is actually happier about that. Um, because as your main view body gets like more and more complex, it has to magically figure out 
what the return type is and the return type mm. is not evident because there's generics all over the place um so it sometimes just throws its hands in the air and says this is too complicated for my small computer brain um so go ahead and like please make it simpler um which is actually a good hint to you that you've made it too complicated as a developer um so as as spencer does i definitely make computer properties make functions that will themselves return either data or uh views Mm -hmm. and that can help like really structure um everything in in that one that one chaotic body um and something i've even done is made functions inside of those functions to handle like subparts uh because a neat thing about modern code editing is you can just fold a function like you can put it out of your like way. Uh, so if everything is kind of grouped like that, it's very easy to find it when you do need it. Um, and it's not necessarily split across many different files and stuff like that um, where it's hard to find. So uh, if you do have a related stuff, you can definitely organize it like that. Um, that actually goes into how I like to structure um, my SwiftUI. And that is a concept that I like to call screens and views screens are what you would typically have made a view controller for in the past and they should be very simple in terms of layout they should just compose the general views that make it up and those general views would either be computer properties or themselves proper views um, that are declared in like another file if they're reused anywhere Um, but this means that your screen has a very simple body that is clear and easy to understand and it has all of the data um, that can correspond to all the interaction between all the different components in that body. Um, now, that becomes your view model that you would typically think about. Um, and it's also where any business logic about the controller would live. Whereas the individual views that might be like a deep nested stack of like HSACs and VSACs and all sorts of crazy stuff. That can be its own separate thing. Um, you can hide it in a different file. You don't need to understand that to understand the screen. Um, mm-hmm. So it can take care of that. It's layout on its own and have like one or two data points that it uses to populate that. Um, but it doesn't need to be all encompassing if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I, I'd love to kind of maybe after the show see maybe some examples or, you know, whenever. Um, I, yeah, it's one thing that I've tried to do a little bit differently than my, the last time I used Swift UI in, um, in like production code is really trying to make things as kind of, um, generic as possible and reusable. Um, like Andrew Madsen did a fantastic job, of course, of, of doing that in his own code. So, uh, one of the things he built out was like a simple selection menu, uh, but he made it in a way that, you know, it doesn't work for just like the feature that he was working on, but it works. You know, I could pull that into my own code very easily. Um, so I've been trying to do that with this thing, kind of like a popover style thing. And um, I feel like I'm maybe on the right track of kind of having like a screen. And what did you call the other ones? Just views? Just views, yeah. Just views. Um, but I don't know, you know, it, it that's I think the the part that is maybe the hardest for me is having a lot of what you're making um, composable and reusable as possible. I mean, maybe you don't need to do that if it's a sort of one-off thing, but I think that's probably kind of a lot of the point of Swift UI is to kind of have that reusability and have um, things be generic in a sense. So uh, until you get to a very specific view and then you can start, you know, doing your specific stuff. But um, it, that's a hard thing for me. So, um, yeah. Um, so, okay. So let's let's go over, like, I think one thing that's hard uh, kind of maybe along the lines of kind of having those generic views and then also getting into the more specific views is like, okay, Maybe I've got this thing that's like specifically for, um, I don't know, editing a photo or whatever, right? I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, I've got this generic view, but I'm going to pull into this view that's like specifically for editing a photo. And maybe I have some like state variable um, that I want to pass into my more generic view. I don't know. This is contrived. 
uh, as are all of my examples. Uh, it's <laughs> becoming a, they're a on common the spot. theme here. Um, but you've got like state variables, you've got uh, state objects, you've got environment objects, uh, observed objects, bindings, you know. All sorts of things. All sorts of things. They've got this weird <laughs> at sign before them that you've never seen before. Uh, They're email addresses, right? Oh, or are they Twitter sense. handles? I'm not sure. Whenever yeah, I whenever Twitter I handles. use them on Twitter, they just go link to people's like usernames. So like I just would assume their suck. Twitter handles this whole time. That's a good username. Someone I'm sure has stolen. They all, all exist. <laughs> Do they? Yeah. So if you if you copy paste Swift code into Twitter, uh, everything turns into usernames. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So can we go over them and and kind of talk about like. Uh, you know, yeah, I don't know. They're they're confusing for sure. Like state object, definitely, and you know, you've got observed object, and what are the difference between those things? And like, it feels like there's a little bit of combine in there, and maybe not, and it, it's confusing so, to me for sure. Yeah, so all of it is combined. Actually, it's not actually right. CQI. Um yeah. But let's let's start with the simplest thing. Uh, simple property, right? Um, a property on a view. Uh, it just describes like some data for that struct because remember a view under the hood is just a struct. Um, so that data does not persist long term. It is for that copy of the struct that you just built. And what SwiftUI will do every time it lays out, it's going to build a new copy of your struct. Anytime you say my view open close parentheses, you're not doing mm -hmm. anything special. You're just building a struct at that point um, right. in time. So any properties that you have, those are going to be rebuilt like at that point. Uh, so you cannot use them for long-term data persistence across like the visual view that's on the screen. You might think, oh, hey, I have a button, and when you click the button, I want to increase a counter. You can't just tell that property to increase. In fact, if you try, the compiler is going to start complaining and say, hey, you're trying to mutate something, and you're in a non-mutating context, and this is like not going to work out for you no matter how much you try. Um, so then you might say, okay, fine, I'll make it a class. And then that <laughs> has its own like host of problems. So uh, SwiftUI gets around this by making a whole bunch of different property wrappers available um, so that way you can go ahead and um, and hook things up properly. Uh, as I said, you have properties. And properties, you can think of them as constants uh, from your view's point of view. They're variable from the creator's point of view. Whoever's creating your view can pass in whatever they need. But from your view's point of view, they're not going to change. So they are um, they are basically the, the basic settings that someone has configured your view with. Um, so that way it can go ahead and show what it needs to show. Uh, the more that you can have as these regular properties that your view is not mutating, the better because that makes it really simple to kind of compose things. Um, you might start your view off as a computer property that's using its parents' properties. And then once you decide, hey, I need to move this like whole subview is getting like way longer than the main body. Uh, let's go mm -hmm. ahead and pull that into its own uh, its own struct in a different file. So you do that and then you can bring over just the properties it needs over with it. And then whenever you need to make that child, you just pass in those properties and they just kind of flow downwards. Um, mm -hmm. So that's the simplest thing. There's a more complicated version of this called an observed object. And this is a special type of class that you can also pass in. So it is not something that the view itself will kind of like readily keep track of. But if you pass it in externally, um, it can use an observed object to do magical things. Namely, anytime the observed object changes one of its published properties, uh, then your view will get a free layout pass. Um, so this way it can go ahead and do something different potentially. It doesn't know yet what is going to be different, but when the body is run, it's going to take note of which published properties of the observed object you called, and it will go ahead and say, okay, this part changed, and this part didn't, and then this part over here changed, and whatever change, it's going to continue down and call body um, and build out a deeper tree of changes. Um, so all that's taken care of for you. So you have regular properties and observed object. They both come from external sources. That's the key piece. Never make an observed object within your view and expect it to stick around because the next layout pass, that observed object is going to be a brand new observed object. It's going to be a different instance than the one you started with. So it always needs to come in externally. 
Now, yeah, what happens? Uh, Go ahead. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I uh, that's that's so. Yeah. Okay. Well, story time. Uh, yesterday, I spent most of the afternoon trying to figure out why the selections to cells in my list didn't stick around once I kind of hid them uh, by closing kind of. Uh, uh, it was like an expanding and closing cell. I have an observed object, so I'm sure that's probably why uh, an observed object that like holds a, a set of <laughs> cells, or like, yeah, I can kind of identify which cell is selected, and that's probably why because the arrays or the set is probably getting uh, reset every time that that reloads. So yeah. thanks for solving my <laughs> half a day's worth of work. <laughs> No, I, I I equally spent many days like tearing my hair out, like frustrated. Why is this not working? Um, and it's because you learn those lessons at that point in time that you remember to never, yeah. never forget this comes in from a, an external source. Um, and that's something that I think no one really talks about. Like we like to talk about solutions in terms of like teaching programming is like, hey, if you want to do this, use this. Or if you want to do this, mm-hmm. use that. You don't understand why, though. So it's uh-huh, very easy totally. to like conflate that information a little bit. Um, and as a result, not understand why it suddenly stops working when you forgot that key piece that it needs to come in externally. Because you're going to forget eventually if you don't have a, a strong signal in your head that's like ringing the alarm bells <laughs> whenever you try to do something. And that's, that's like what comes with quote unquote experience is having enough of these horror stories that you're never going to forget. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just like, you know, how we tried to drill uh, translates auto-resizing mask into constraints into into our students' heads. It's just mm-hmm. like, I promise you this will bite you in the butt. Mm-hmm. Um, I never forget. Like, I will never <laughs> forget to put that. It's automatic. I make a new view. Yeah. I type that. I set it to, <laughs> to false. And I, I go on my way. I activate my constraints. It's just muscle memory at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it's It's no longer an issue of like... Uh, people like to post memes of like, oh, it's been zero days since I forgot to type this. No, it's been it's been a, a full year since I forgot <laughs> to type that because I have been burned so many times by it already that it's yeah. no longer an issue. So uh, be burned by your code because you, you get scarred enough. You that, learn from it. Uh, you learn very quickly and you you can memorize techniques and you don't have to look them up. And it's, it's super practical to be good at what you're doing uh, as you as you improve. So. Uh, do try to improve even though like many people say oh hey on your on your free days you don't necessarily need to learn about programming that's true Uh, but at the same time you should strive to improve because that will make you it will make it easier for you you to do the work that you're doing right yeah for sure i think maybe not for everyone but that's something that like i've been happy with where uh, I can also have programming as a hobby. And I, I mean, I'm not programming every day. Uh, Dimitri and uh, the rest of the code completionists know how much I play Smash Bros. Like, I definitely <laughs> do other things. Uh, but I will also spend time, uh, you know, working on my own personal stuff. So um, it's good when it's like that. It's not always like that for everyone, but uh, can be nice. Um, okay, so... <laughs> uh, we, we got see. half of the story in terms of data. We got, okay, yeah, I was going to say, we didn't get everything. Okay, so the other half is at state and at state object. Um, now, these never come in from external sources. You can set the first version externally, um, and this is where I think people get super confused about them um, because they're like, hey, like, uh, it worked the first time, and then every like my view is there, and I keep telling it, here's a new value, and it's not using that value. Um, mm-hmm. And it's probably because you're using at state or at state object. When do you need to use at state or at state object? Well, anytime a part of your view needs to mutate itself. So it needs to modify a property. Say you have a button and a counter um, and you want to update that counter. That counter needs to be an at state. Similarly, um, at state object is like a combination of an at state and an observed object in that it's not that you can't make an object an at state you totally can it can be a pointer to an object and it's going to be happy with that but it's not going to magically know when its published properties change so that's where Mm. state object comes in because it gives you a hook back uh towards um the the view to kind of tell it to relay out 
Um, so that's something uh, that's important there. Now, um, at state and at state object don't actually live in your view. They are what lives in your view is a pointer to something that lives in SwiftUI's system that's going to be kept up to date with your view's existence. So if your view becomes available, your state becomes a thing. And if your view no longer becomes available, your state also gets destroyed. Um, so that's something important to think about when it comes to state and state object is this is data that is deeply tied with your view's presentation on screen and not the view as a struct. So when you create the view the first time, that state is going to be created with an initial value that you can provide externally, but that's kind of a trap because then you might assume that, hey, on the next layout pass of my parent view, I might provide a different value and then the the view is not going to get that, that new value because it has no idea what it is. Um, so that's something that you should keep in mind when you are using at state and at state object. There are ways around this. For instance, you can pass a new value as a regular property and then update your state in on a peer with that property. Like that's something totally that you can do. Um, and that will update your state, but it's only working because you're doing it in on a peer when the state is actually tied to a reference. If you update it before it's tied to a reference, then like nothing is going to happen and that value is just going to be thrown out because the state already exists. Um, so that is, those are the key differences between like the main data types. And you mentioned mm. a few more. There's like uh, environment object and environment. Um, and these can all come in externally uh, from uh, a parent but not necessarily specified by the parent. So it can come from much higher in the view hierarchy. And this is a very convenient way to do like dependency injection. Um, anytime you might have a singleton, instead of having a singleton, make it an environment object because then anything that needs it will crash if you don't provide it. So it's like a good reminder, like, hey, you forgot something. Um, but that also makes it super easy to mock and test because you can just... In, for instance, I love to do this for networking objects um, where I'll make them an environment object and I'll make a wrapper or two to like make it nice to read. Um, but I'll make a separate mock instance that's specific for previews. So that way my previews always have data and they don't mm. actually have to make a network call to get that data. Whereas the app is going to have an environment object at the root of the UI hosting controller. Um, and that one will be tied to the app's instance that it's passing around. Um, so that's always the same network object that knows when it's logged in, uh, things like that. Um, so that's a very clear way of like differentiating how you're passing down values. If it needs to go down like several chains, you might want to consider an environment object if it's an object or just an environment if it's a regular uh, struct value of some sort, like a simple piece of data, uh, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, if it's more complex than a piece of data, it has its own state that is keeping track of it and stuff like that. Um, and it's, it has business logic, then use an environment object. Uh, but yeah, otherwise you can use just a regular environment and like propagate that, the, that information downwards. Okay. So I was also using an environment object just to pass a, a simple value kind of down this, this chain of views. And I kind of did that cause I felt lazy and I didn't want to pass a binding down all the way? Is that okay? Or should I be using a binding kind of all the way down? Or does it really matter? Does that make sense? Yeah. So we didn't even talk about bindings yet. Uh, bindings are a way oh. of passing information like from the child view up to the parent. So for instance, um, an excellent example right. of this is a control like a text field. If you need to tell a text field, hey, here's the value you should have. And the text field can put that in there. And then the text field needs to tell you, hey, I modified this value. Here's the new version of it. So that information propagates back up. So it's it's really just a pointer to the parent's data structure. Um, right. Now, this gets a little complicated when you're, like, trying to set it up in your previews. And you're like, I don't know what to put. There's a simple, like, shorthand for that, dot .constant. Dot .constant is a pointer to something that does not really exist um, anywhere practically. Uh, but from your view's point of view, it's going to behave like an, a state and it can go ahead and update that, but there's no like external listener to that information. So, 
Uh, a binding is just like a pointer back to the parents like version of it. Um, and it allows the child to modify that. If you need to go several chains down, as you said, binding is probably not the thing that you want to just like chain all the way down. Mm -hmm. And you might want to think of a more proper data model, like an environment object that can go ahead and propagate that upwards. Um, so I would say that's probably fine. You won't be able to do that with an environment. Um, but yeah, with an environment object, that's probably totally fine. There's a separate thing that you can use called preference keys, which I have honestly yeah. like used once and not have delved too deep into, but they work very similarly. So you can set a preference key at the child and then at the parent, you can accumulate all the children's preference keys and decide what to do with them. Do you add them together? Do you take the average? Do you take the mm. first one? Do you take the last one? Whatever you need to do, you can do that. And then it will cause a relayout because you change some value. Um, but you can go ahead and uh, influence the layout in the other direction with this. There are some caveats there. Like it will go ahead and complain if you do it too, too many times per frame. Um, and you can get stuck in like a layout loop, basically. And that's what the complaint is, is to warn mm -hmm. you about that. Um, but that is another uh, way of organizing that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I um I mean, really the reason that I went with an environment object was because you know, you put like at environment object whatever your variable is and you don't have to give it a value when you initialize it. It just like figures out, "Oh, from the parent there's an environment object of the same type. Let me and uh, probably the same name. Uh I'll just grab that and that's <laughs> I think that's super cool." So, maybe it was out of laziness, but it sounds like it's okay. Yeah, it's um, it's based oh. on the type, right? So right. whatever whatever type, if you have like a, a network session like uh, class that's an observed object, that's an mm. excellent candidate to make an observed object. Um, I would make a, a modifier, not a modifier, um, a um, extension on view that's just called like dot network session that just mm -hmm. takes a network session. Um, and this way you're not typing dot environment object and then like passing in the network session. You have something nicer to read when you're like looking over the code afterwards, but mm. it's a simple wrapper. All it's doing is calling dot environment object. Um, and all the subviews you just still have add environment object, um, to handle that. Um, I didn't really look into like making special sugar just for that part as well. Um, but for the most part, that I would highly recommend over any singleton idea that you've had in the past. Um, anytime you have like one single object in most of your app, um, or even in certain parts, like you might have different objects, as long as it propagates an entire hierarchy, that's a good candidate for that. Okay. Um, going back to, and when you said it, it made sense, but I didn't really think about it like that. Um, where a binding is really so that a, a child can pass data up to the parent. That totally makes sense, like in the context of um, a text field. But I was just thinking like, oh, I need to get some data down to the child. Um, with an environment object, it can still perform that function of kind of going and propagating the information up to the parent, right? Because mm -hmm. the parent would also have that and it could be, those changes could be observed. Yeah, so you can have an a state object at the top at the parent that's, uh, an, an observed object and then the parent will in its body say dot environment object that state mm -hmm. object and then from that point forward the parent knows any intermediate children that have at environment object that they would know because it's an object um, and then the deepest child would be able to inform the parent that hey here's a new version of the data that we can propagate upwards right okay cool um so i i think the last thing like we probably want to split this discussion up because we've, we've been talking very much about the the data model and there's like a whole bunch of stuff we can talk about layout. So uh, maybe yeah. we can do that next time. Um, but as a last point that I wanted to bring up regarding the data model um, is be very careful about like abstracting out a view model of like all your data and all your properties, it might be very tempting because, hey, your view is a view and you need something that's special for the view to kind of inform it how to display. Um, but if you think of your view as very much a, like either a screen or a view, 
then it makes it a little easier to differentiate how much data to propagate. If it's just a view, the small, the least amount of data, the better, right? You don't want to give it a huge data model and say, hey, pick and choose what you need. Um, that's kind of like what we're doing with environment object in a way. Uh, but uh, for the most part, um, that is an excellent part place to just have like one or two properties that the view needs, and that's it. At the screen level, that's where you want to just have all your properties um, because outside influence doesn't need to tell the screen, hey, you need to have this, 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 this. The screen is kind of determining that as you interact with it. Um, so if you have one input for the screen, that's fine. Uh, and then the screen can go ahead and propagate everything else. That's, that's I think, the ideal. Um, if you do really, 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 really want a view model, you're going to run into some issues. Namely, one, you can't use Swift UI's environments at all. You can't do any sort of dependency injection uh, via that because, hey, your view model, not part of the view chain and the view hierarchy because the view hierarchy only becomes active within that body. It's not even active anywhere else. It's only when you call stuff from the body, that's when it's alive. But if you're in an init, completely useless. Um, so... Uh, a lot of people might say, hey, I have a view model. It's a at state object or it's an at observed object, and it has a whole bunch of business logic. Move that business logic over to your screen because then it can interact with the view more readily. Uh, namely, it can go ahead and tell certain views, hey, uh, here's uh, there's an alert or there's an error. Um, it can set states. It can set uh, environments. It can check environments. Um, it can do all sorts of things where you're more, much more limited if you have it in a view model. That said, if you do want it in a view model, you need to tell your view model every time your view is refreshed. Basically, uh, you can do this in on appear and on disappear or the new dot task in a way. Um, but in on appear, you can tell your view model, hey, this is the new view. Uh, nice to meet you. It's going to be a brand new one next layout pass uh, with a whole new set of properties. But at that moment in time, all the properties are set up. All the environments uh, have values. All the states have values. Um, everything's interactive. Uh, so that's a good time to kind of pass that information through. But you do need to pass it through. And that's something that's not obvious because it's not really a pattern that SwiftUI encourages. Um, so if you do want to have a view model, it should be strictly data. It should not have any business logic. It should not do anything. It should just encapsulate the data as a whole so that you don't need to have a, a first name, a last name, an age. Uh, you don't have to have all those things as separate properties. You can just have a single um, user like model that has all those individual properties in it. That's like where you should be leaning towards in terms of like a view model. Um, it should not really be a coordinator of any sort that kind of does stuff. Um, that stuff should be kept in the Swift UI screen. And as long as you pull out all of the subviews from your screen, your screen can dedicate itself to that business logic and be a proper controller at the end of the day, right? Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, interesting. I will have to think about that. I don't think I was doing anything like that, like that observed object that is kind of this problem. All it had was like a dictionary in it, or a mm -hmm. set. It was it was pretty straightforward. But so if I needed to do anything with that uh, set, that would be in my screen essentially, like mm -hmm. when I wanted to send that back to the UI kit part of the app or something like that. Yeah. Um. Or uh, like a super common one is, hey, you need to make a network request of some sort. Mm -hmm. Keep that network right. okay. request in your screen because guess what? You just got your network object via an environment object, right? It's right there. In your screen, if you have any errors, you can go ahead and update your view to show an error. Like it's all stateful at that point. Whereas if you hide it in your in your model, in your view model coordinator, whatever you want to call it thing, um, then yes, in your view, you can have a button that says log in and that will tell your view model, hey, log in. But your view model now has to get your uh, network from somewhere. It can't get it from the environment unless you kind of hot patch it through on a peer, um, and then it might change at any moment. Um, so your your view model needs to be prepared for it to change at any moment. And then in your view model, if you get data, then you can set your published properties, and that will propagate back to the view. 
But if you get an error, then you have to have special properties just for an error, which you need to propagate to the view, which also probably has an error to update its view. Does that make sense? Like you get into a lot of redundancy that doesn't actually help you in the long run. Um, yeah. So it's it's like an over insistence on like, hey, we need to stick to these dedicated patterns, MVC, MVVM, uh, Viper, Coder, I don't know, whatever people yeah. want to call these. Uh, the thing that I have like learned the most in my career as a software developer is these represent like individual people's like habits more than anything. It just like, hey, this one person, they like to code their, make their code look like this. So that made a whole architecture uh, that they want to call it. Um, so that's why I don't even want to call uh, my mental model of having screens and views an architecture because it certainly fits under that, like, that paradigm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I don't want people to like stick to it. It's meant to be broken when it needs to be broken, right? You need to go ahead and use the best tool that's available for the given job. Um, and you need to learn how to identify when a tool is good for the for a given job. That doesn't mean you should never like take a look and a gander at how different architectures solve different problems. But that doesn't mean you need to stick to the way that they prescribe doing it. Um, it's really up to you to think and say, hey, like I really like this idea. I'm going to steal it. Swift uh-huh. does this all the time. It's like, I hey, I really like operator overloading from this that language. I'm going to steal that. Objective C never had it, never needed it, but it's kind of cool that it's there now, um, yeah. and it makes the language better. So you can go ahead and do that with your own code, um, and really try not to fight the framework as much as possible. Um, and in this case, like MVVM active or coordinators or whatever architecture you want to call it actively fights swift ui because swift ui is not made under that model it's made under a swift ui model that just doesn't have a proper name yet um so you need to kind of to best use that you can either choose hey i'm never going to use environments or you can choose i'm going to use all this stuff that swift ui makes available to me um and just work alongside that rather than fight it right yeah yeah i mean I don't know if this is quite the same thing, but, you know, we've talked about like, maybe we've talked about this. I feel like we have, Um, you know, or at the very least, I know that I would kind of talk about it um, when I was teaching is like, learn the rules uh, so that you know when to break them and when it's kind of appropriate to break them, but don't just kind of ignore them. So like, MVC is a pretty good pattern. MVVM, I would assume, is a pretty good pattern for most app development. Uh, I've never used it, but um, like in this case, it's like you know enough to know that it doesn't quite fit SwiftUI's model. And you need to kind of break the rules of like the entire rest of your app maybe using MVC or whatever. But if it doesn't work with SwiftUI, don't use it because you're going like break the rules before it breaks your code. Exactly. Like you could totally have um, MVVM or coordinators for the UI kit part if that makes a ton of sense to you. And then as soon as you bridge into SwiftUI, just have a paradigm shift and think in a different way because you're going to need to think in a different way anyways. Um, So may as well use uh, the tools that are provided to the best of their ability, right? This week's episode of Code Completion is brought to you by Pennant. Calling all sports fans. Want to keep track of the season, but there's so many teams and not enough time? Check out Pennant. Pennant provides sports standings at a glance. Pennant displays league standings as a simple bar chart where the best teams rise to the top throughout the season. Of course, you can dig in deeper with team stats, game results, and more. Version 10 introduced the all-new customizable My Pennant View, where you can build a wide selection of visualizations for any sport, division, or team. Unlock Pennant Premium to add as many blocks as you'd like and put any of them on your home screen as a widget. Whether you follow MLB, NFL, NBA, NHL, or MLS, Pennant has you covered with more sports and leagues coming soon. Thank you so much to Pennant for sponsoring Code Completion. Download Pennant on the iOS App Store today. So as always, I want to personally thank everyone for listening in this week. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter at CodeCompletion to know when new episodes get released. And feel free to tweet at us if there's ever a topic you'd like for us to dig into. 
Most importantly, as a small podcast, please be sure to share this with your friends and family who are also interested in any part of the process of app development. It's your support that enables us to continue doing this, and we hope to grow a healthy community around everything we discuss. Once again, I want to give my thanks to Spencer, who is at Spencer C. Curtis, that's S-P-E-N-C-E-R-C-C-U-R-T-I-S on Twitter for joining me this week. My name, once again, is Dimitri. You can find me at Dimitri Buniol, that's D-I-M-I-T-R-I-B-O-U-N-I-O-L, and we'll see you all next week. Bye. Okay, so uh, for Commented Out, I wanted to, like, meander a little bit, uh, because using multiple computers sucks, and, (laughs) like... I just want to highlight that as much as possible. Uh, you have all your stuff on one wonderful computer uh, with many displays, all your layout the way you like it, um, everything where it needs to be. Um, but that computer, like even though it's a laptop, uh, is not really portable because once you unplug it, nothing is where like it was supposed to be. Um, so you lose out in like one avenue of you had your desk. And although you can shuffle all your desk into like one little pile and bring it somewhere with you, that desk is no longer organized the way it was organized and like it's completely useless. Alternatively, you can kind of set up a little camera on your desk and you can see all your desk, but you have like none of the data that's with it. It's like just a view onto like what your desk is. Um, And that is an equally like horrible solution uh solution number three is you have multiple computers um but like each one has a slightly different you have multiple desks right you have different stuff on each desk but you also Mm. have different data and any notes you took on one may or may not be like the same on the other there are tools that kind of bridge this like notes will sync up and email kind of shows up on everywhere um but uh, other things like code, you have to remember to sync up. So you have to remember to push your changes on Git. You can't just like get up and walk away uh, to another one and like start working over there. Um, and things may not have been saved on computer A, so therefore they're not available on computer B. So uh, using multiple computers sucks. <laughs> yes, yes, it does. That's uh, that's very much a first world problem. <laughs> but yes, I agree. I'm. I'm definitely there with you. I mean, I've got, um, you know, the work MacBook Pro is basically the one that I use most of the time. Um, but then I've got my MacBook Air. I've got a Mac Mini in the other room. And it's like, uh, and what sucks is like for testing, I have, I don't know. Well, I don't have that many right now, but I used to have, I, I think I have like three or four um, iPads right now, you know, all of different sizes and everything. And it's like, okay, now I have to update all of them and like run through, make sure they're all charged, go through, go into settings, wait for them to download and stuff. And it's like, oh my gosh, like this is, it's kind of a full-time job just keeping up everything, like charging and staying up to date and everything. And then, you know, like maybe, well, you probably can't, I don't have it, but like updating apps on the app store and everything, I don't have automatic updates turned on. So I have to manually go and uh, either jump onto my laptop or like BNC into it and update those. And it's just like, there's a lot of like mental overhead of having mm-hmm. <laughs> multiple computers. So, yeah. And um, you can add computers to the list to like behave as a content cache and like make everything a little speedier, um, which is totally doable. And that's what I have at home. Uh, but yeah, like going back to the VNC thing, VNC is horrible. It's like the VNC worst sucks, experience. Dude. But it's something I want to, like, work so well. Like, I want to be able to uh, be in the living room and just pull up any little laptop and, like, log into my matrix over here uh, with my four monitors and be able to use that. But you can't because it's four monitors and it doesn't fit on a laptop. So it's like everything is super tiny. And thankfully, we have Retina screens now so you can actually see it if you, like, have a good enough... Uh, prescription. I, I don't, normal people, you probably gave up a long time ago, but uh, us glasses people, we can dial these things in to see real tiny. Um, <laughs> so, like, everything else is like a super cosmic warp session as, like, everything warps around you when you kind of get that, that nitty-gritty uh, focus going. And the, the eye doctor's like, are you sure you want that? And I'm like, yes, please. Um, but, yeah, it's 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 totally, like, the worst experience uh and like it should be so good like you should be able to just like not need to be tied down to 
a specific setup, right? Like, we live in an age of computers. You should be able to be on the go. And I'm not saying, like, from your phone, but, like, at least from an iPad, be able to mm-hmm. pull up stuff that you're, like, working on and, like, tweak a little thing one here or there or check something here or there and not feel like you need to go through a rigmarole of, like, ancient technology and uh, a slideshow called VNC to, like, do anything. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm just frustrated. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, whenever I like BNC on my work laptop from anything like my MacBook Air or whatever, it's on the stupid ultra wide screen. And so it's like the BNC window is <laughs> like little, the top half of my screen, screen and that's it. <laughs> then I have to like squint and zoom in and like find the display settings to set it to like 1080p so I can actually. But then all your windows are ruined. It's like. No, ah. I know. I know. I know. It's the worst. I mean, it would be cool if it would, like, automatically display, change the display. But like you said, you know, the windows are changed then. It's like, oh, my gosh, dude. There's no... I mean, the... Yeah, my solution is to have Dana's um, ultra-wide iMac. And then my problems are solved. And then I can DNC. <laughs> and it's the same aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. I think... Uh, what was that new thing? Uh, something control? Uh, universal control? I think that's going to help a little tiny bit with like some use cases where you just have like multiple computers right next to each other because then, oh no, I guess you can't have like a window span. You can just move the mouse. I was going to say you Uh can have two iMacs and you can just kind of have your VNC. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Yeah. That that wouldn't work. Does universal control work between Macs as well? I know that I've seen people go from like iPad to Mac or Mac to iPad to iPad. No, I saw this crazy thing on Twitter where someone had like... I don't want to say 10, but it seemed like 10, like yeah. different devices. And they just like move the mouse along this whole chain. Oh, and I'm like, wow, that is so that's cool. So cool. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I can't wait for that to be a thing. That'll be so nice again, mm-hmm. just for testing mostly, but it's, ah, it's such a cool feature. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe when we get AR glasses, we'll get like proper VNC where you can just like whole setup, blam, right in front of yeah. you, wherever you are. Uh, you I can was just, gonna like, say, log into that. That'd be neat. I was gonna say, Dimitri, your solution is the metaverse. Oh no! <laughs> Anytime that's, that's anyone pretty... mentions the metaverse, I like remember that super, like, very weird video that I think someone made. It can't. It couldn't have come out of actual Facebook. But there's like um, Zuckerberg or whatever, and he has like a knife behind him, and his like legs are all janky, and he's like, "Welcome to the metaverse." <laughs> Would you like to give a cake to to Mark? And then it's like, you choose no, and it's like, you have chosen not to give a cake to Mark, and Mark is there with the knife. It's like this super weird video. And I'm like, where did this come from? Whose mind did this leak out of? Oh Um, my gosh. But yeah, that's, that's, that's permanently poisoned my, my view of the metaverse. Yeah. (laughs) I just think of that every time. It's like, no good. 